Are you obligated as a Christian to defend the Christian worldview? What is your responsibility when being pressed on the claims of Christianity, its beliefs, especially by atheists, and even more so by apostates who have been around Christianity for years, in some cases, and rejected it? How should Christians respond to and interact with atheists. My name is Ed Dingus, and you're listening to The Reformed Rant. The Reformed Rant is an informal podcast where I discuss the most pressing theological, philosophical, and social issues of our day, but I do so from a distinctly Reformed Christian perspective. And today, I am talking about the cowardice and irrationalism of atheistic thought. to the jungle of irrationalism because that's exactly what atheistic thought is. Don't mean to be insulting to atheists, just making observations. Now, 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Okay? Always be ready. This is, this is an issue for Christians. You need to be ready to give an answer, to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account, a reason for why you have this hope. What is the hope? The hope in, in, in you is Christ. Why? What is, what is your answer to why Christ? Your answer does not have to meet the tests of unbelieving atheists. Okay? Your reason for believing in Jesus Christ does not have to pass their test. That's point number one. This is, we run by this, apologists run by this, ignore it, don't think about it. It just gets an uncritical, the idea that you have to give a rational answer that accords with the kind of reasoning that atheists engage in is uncritically accepted by apologists all over the world. They don't even stop for a moment to think about, wait, well, wait a minute. Does what kind I mean, Peter's telling us we have to be prepared, we have to have spiritual and mental preparedness to give an answer, to give an account for the hope that is is in us. He does not say that that account 
should receive the blessing and approval of those who are hostile to the faith or enemies of God. He does not say that anywhere. In fact, that is not inferred anywhere in the entire scripture. Yet, if you listen to apologists all over the world, this is how they're trained. It has to accord with the unbelieving's use of things like uh, logical argumentation, uh, their philosophy of science, their philosophy of fact, their philosophy of what qualifies and doesn't qualify for evidence. They get to set the standard, and that is absolutely backwards. We're going to talk about that. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Atheistic reasoning is reasoning that is according to the elementary principles of the world. Okay? Psalm 14.1 says this about the atheist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Now this doesn't mean an intellectually challenged person. The fool. This, is a, this has a moral component to it. The irresponsible person. Irresponsible people are not necessarily intellectually challenged or deficient or defective. There are many really bright people who are irresponsible people. Their cognitive faculties are working just fine and in some cases are gifted. And yet, they still behave immorally and irresponsibly. They ignore their duties. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You are a fool if you embrace atheism. So what is atheism really? Well, there's been a new shift in atheism over the last 15 years or so. Atheists want us to accept a new definition for atheism. They want to call it merely or simply a disbelief or lack of belief in God. It isn't the belief that there is no God. It is the belief that there isn't enough evidence to conclude that there's a God. Why the new look and feel? Well, it's simple. The old look and feel uh, was philosophically embarrassing. That's why. It is impossible to prove a negative belief, such as there is no God. Once atheists finally figured this out, they changed their dance. But if one consults the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and I'm talking about that big set that I think was uh, published around 1950-ish time frame, it says this, according to the most usual definition, an atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. That is, that the sentence, God exists, expresses a false proposition. In contrast, an agnostic maintains that it is not known or cannot be known whether there is a God. That is, whether the sentence, God exists, expresses a true proposition. 
essentially, from a technical standpoint, the way modern atheists want to define themselves, that definition is really agnosticism. Okay, so it's atheism parading around with an agnostic cloak. It's cowardice. So we have to conclude, when we're talking about atheism, atheism is the outright rejection of belief in the existence of God. The outright rejection of belief in the existence of God. That is to say, the, the proposition God exists is false. It's not true. God doesn't exist. Now, these atheists will tell you I'm not claiming that God doesn't exist. I'm only claiming that there isn't good evidence to suggest that he does. That's what they will say. But what they believe is that there is no God. They don't just believe that there isn't enough evidence to conclude that God exists. And we know this because most atheists, or a lot of atheists, spend their time doing what? Try to, trying to convince everyone else that this God belief stuff is nonsense. That's not something you do if you're just not sure. That's something you do if, really, you're sure, even if you won't say you're sure. When it comes to the existence of God, you either affirm his existence or you reject it. There's no shrugging of the shoulders. So you fit the definition of Psalm 1 of a fool. Agnosticism comes in two basic expressions. Soft agnosticism that uh, holds that uh, uh, one does not know if the proposition God exists is true or false. Don't know. Hard agnosticism holds that you can't know. It's impossible to know if this proposition that God exists, this claim, is true or false. You just don't know. That is agnosticism, not atheism. Now, what is the biblical conclusion that we have to draw regarding atheism? For Christians, you have to stay with Scripture. You cannot be like a lot of these apologists who are not men of Scripture so much as they are men of Aristotelian philosophy. More than anything else, they are in love with philosophy because they are in love with their own intellect. They are idolaters, many of them, of their own intellect intellect. They are enamored with intellectual capacity of the human being, and more specifically, their own intellect. Romans chapter 1, verses 20-21 says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The unbeliever sees the attributes of God. They see his power. They see his nature. And through the creation of the universe, through general revelation, they understand 
what has been made by the power of God. They have sufficient evidence and understanding to conclude that the proposition God exists is true. And it's worse for them than just that. For even though they knew God, Paul says, they did not honor him as God. Paul says they know God. But they don't honor him as God. They know. They have the evidence in front of them. They have the ability to understand that what has been made was made by God. They, they don't just have the ability to understand that. Paul says they have the understanding. He says they know God. They don't honor him as God or give thanks. Instead, he said they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Modern atheists are philosophical cowards. Now, why would I say such a mean thing as modern atheists are philosophical cowards? Well, because it's true. They're cowards because of how they want to define atheism. They're after a definition that they think gets them off the hook for justifying their, their atheistic beliefs and claims. They know they have an epistemic problem. They don't want to admit it. They don't want you to know about it. And they don't want to have to answer for it. Their motivation for denying the existence of God is not merely intellectual. In fact, it's mostly not intellectual at all. Their claim that there's zero evidence for God or not enough evidence to believe in God is patently false. They rule out any kind of evidence that you would think might exist for God belief from the start so that you can't, e you can't even get the evidence submitted into the court of law. When you think about, you watch these shows um, on TV, these uh, uh, legal shows. I watch a lot of them. And one of the things that you see the, the defense team always trying to do is suppress evidence, to keep the evidence from being admitted into court. This is exactly the strategy that the atheist is employing. They want to say there's no evidence, and when you do bring forth evidence, they want to suppress that evidence and pretend that it isn't evidence at all. Okay, They want us to believe that they are not arguing that the proposition God exists is a false proposition. That's what they want us to believe. That's the easy, that's the easy path for them. But, but then if you talk to them long enough, you realize that that is exactly what they believe. They won't say that in an argument, but they will say everything else they can that it only makes sense to say if that's actually what they believe. 
right? They won't say it because they know that it is logically untenable and philosophically indefensible. That's why they won't say it. They won't argue it with you that way. Don't get distracted by that nonsense. Challenge the atheist on the idea of suppressing the evidence. Make that argument. Where are you getting this notion from that there's zero evidence for the existence of God? Just exactly what qualifies as evidence in your worldview? And once you start talking uh, like that with an atheist, they prepare yourself because they will, many of them, will become extremely ugly and hostile. Some of them will just check out. Very few of them will bother to grapple with this concept. The atheist doesn't, doesn't, they want just about everything to be on the table for debate except the idea of rational belief itself. They don't want to talk about that. They just want to uncritically accept the criteria that supposedly makes for rational or reasonable beliefs. They, They do not want to defend the concept of a rational belief within the atheistic construct that they embrace. And the reason you will find that they don't want to do that is because they they can't defend it if human beings are what they say they are. And I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. So they move the goalposts in order to try and convince you that they don't need to defend their beliefs, right? But you do. You do. So as a Christian, you want to find a, a way to frame it so that they are on the defensive so that they do have to to defend their claims. So let's try it this way. Let's say theism, what are we claiming? There is good reason to think the proposition God exists is true. Now we know it's true. Okay, so don't get distracted by the way I phrase this. There is good reason. If it is absolutely true that God exists, it is also absolutely true that there is good reason to think the proposition God exists is true, okay? Second, atheism. How should we frame that proposition? There is no good reason to think the proposition God exists is true. There's no good reason to think that, okay? So the Christian and the atheist do not agree on what we would say would be the necessary or sufficient properties that qualify a reason as being good, Right, you don't don't get lost. You got to get into the details sometimes of these. You got to break them down. So when you look at that statement, there is no good reason to think the proposition God exists is true. If you're not careful, you just jump in and start arguing. Well, God exists. Don't do that. Back up. Well, wait a minute. Good reason. Let's talk about your philosophy of what is a good reason and what is not a good reason. And the criteria for how you came up with with what is good and what is not good. And why you selected the criteria that you selected. Trust me, the atheist does not want to go down that path. 
given the fact that the overwhelming majority, not all, but the overwhelming majority of atheists are either materialists or naturalists, which at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, when it comes to metaphysics, end up in really the same place. That all that there really is in the universe is physical matter, material. And that everything that's happening in the universe is happening as a result of the laws of physics. Period. This has devastating consequences for the, the idea that I'm talking about. And that idea is this that there is such a thing as a belief-forming model to which all human beings should subject themselves. That is to say, there's, there's a right way to form beliefs, and then there's a lot of wrong ways to do it. But there is one right way to form beliefs. Well, if the universe and everything that's happening in the universe is happening as a result of the laws of physics, how could you possibly say that? Who, I mean, seriously, you, I'm not going to get into the complexities of this, but if you will just think about that, your beliefs are being formed by the laws of physics, not, not you, not even your brain, but what the laws of physics are doing to your brain. How many brains are there in the world? Over seven billion. Which brain is the right brain? Which brain should we align ourselves to in order to make sure that our beliefs are being formed properly? Wait a minute. How do you even align your brain to another brain or to a model? Since the activity in your brain is driven by the laws of physics and not some independent you that's separate from your brain, since you, you just are your brain. You see what happens when we go down this path, we end up in irrationalism. It's, it's knowledge becomes essentially impossible. And the idea that you are responsible for, for forming beliefs according to some model is unsustainable in this worldview. It does not work. It represents a violent contradiction to say that your beliefs are formed by the laws of physics on one hand, and you are resp responsible for forming your beliefs in just this certain way on the other hand. Both of those statements cannot be true. Either the laws of physics are forming my beliefs in my brain, doing whatever they're doing in my brain, or I'm responsible for identifying how beliefs ought to be formed, and there is this abstract model out there that I should be aligning myself to. This is what happens to atheism. Both the theist and the atheist are on equal footing regarding the right approach to this question. Both will now have to provide their good reasons for reaching their respective conclusions. The theist says we should adopt beliefs according to God's way of adopting beliefs, or according to how God says we should adopt beliefs. God is our creator, cannot lie. If God said something, it must be true. We should form the belief that whatever God says is true. So the theist doesn't have the same 
problem. We cannot ignore the next step, which is to examine the necessary propositions that make a reason for a belief good, and from there contend that atheists will have to put up some sort of justification for his belief, and this the atheist cannot do. Now, given atheistic naturalism, philosophical materialism, how is it possible for one to justify their criteria for what qualifies as good reasons for forming beliefs? How can they do that? If the belief-forming process is simply the product of the laws of nature working in the brain, then which brain is the one brain that serves as the model? And I'm saying this again because it bears repeating. This is a little bit, this requires some thinking. This requires cognitive energy. You're going to be a, you're going to follow Jesus Christ. You're going to love God with all your mind. Simple. If, if your brain forms beliefs in and about God based on criteria produced in it by the laws of nature, and the atheist's brain forms just the opposite belief or beliefs, then it really isn't me or you forming these various beliefs, so to speak. It's the laws of nature, just like the laws of nature produce death. They cause a tree moving by the force of the wind, the earth spinning, the clouds rolling by. The brain forms beliefs about a variety of observations from the sensory data it takes in on a daily basis, just in the way that the laws of nature condition it to, the laws of physics, working in the brain to do whatever they do in that brain. And apparently, the laws of physics impact human brains differently across the globe. And we know this because we have a multitude, almost an innumerable number of beliefs that human beings embrace and form. And those things are formed in those individual brains by the laws of physics. It does not follow that just because one or a thousand brains do X, that all brains now have some sort of duty to do X. Where, does, where would that mandate come from in a physical universe? All right, the very idea of rational itself, when you think about what it means to be rational, that idea is lost. There can be no rational. And if the rational is in fact lost, no one brain can claim to have a corner on the market of what is and is not rational. The very idea of insanity is swallowed up in a maze of synapses firing off in billions of brains at the speed of 2,000 per second. The atheist wants you to believe, wants you to think that the way these synapses are firing in their brain is actually proper, while the way these synapses are firing in brains that form religious beliefs are somehow broken, defective, abnormal, even insane, according to some militant atheists. This makes the very idea of epistemic justification unintelligible in any meaningful sense whatsoever, given a naturalism or materialism foundation. 
And this results in the impossibility of knowledge. A radical skepticism swallows up atheism into an abyss of total irrationalism. Now, the way the Christian looks at this, the, the syllogism for knowing, for knowledge, human knowledge, would look kind of something like this. And this is more, this is a, this is a transcendental argument, even though it takes a deductive form. Don't let the form fool you, for those of you who are familiar with, with logical syllogisms. But here's the, here's the, here's the fact. If knowledge exists, then God exists. Knowledge exists. God exists. Now, what we're arguing here is not that knowledge itself is the proof for God's existence, so to speak. This is not... Uh, a traditional argument. What we're saying by saying it this way is this. God is the necessary condition for human knowledge. Without God, human knowledge wouldn't exist. Humans wouldn't be able to really truly know anything. And we know this because if we, and this is the power of the, the presuppositional approach, the transcendental approach, we know this because the denial of knowledge is a self-defeating proposition. You either have no knowledge or you have knowledge. If you claim that we have no knowledge, you still must conclude that there is God because God is the necessary condition of knowledge. You cannot. It is impossible for a person to deny knowledge without presupposing knowledge. Think about that for a second. It is impossible for someone to claim you can't know anything without knowing something. Human knowledge is an uncontroversial experience that all human beings have. What this is basically doing is undermining any kind of worldview that is built off materialism or naturalism. Any worldview that actually leads to the logical conclusion that knowledge is, is impossible, and this is what the most coherent views of atheism, and I'm not saying when I say most coherent, I should probably say the least incoherent. Uh, the the most the least untenable we'll say it this way of of atheistic schemes are observed in uh, materialism as a worldview naturalism as a worldview uh, and if those worldviews contradict an uncontroversial experience of human existence then they should be abandoned. It's pretty simple. Atheists are not going to abandon them, though, regardless of how compelling, how powerful, how forceful arguments 
might be that actually contradict those schemes. Because their objection to God is not merely intellectual. It's moral. It's spiritual. And this is where the apologetics uh, discussions really run off the tracks. There's, there's, there's a tendency to ignore the spiritual condition of the person that you're interacting with. Look, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commanded that Christians be ready. Part of that command means that part of that command would would entail uh, that we are good thinkers, that we have equipped ourselves to think well, to work through uh, challenges, objections to the Christian worldview. I, I recognize that I recognize that most American Christians are some of the worst thinkers that the world's produced to date. I recognize that that is an undeniable, indisputable fact. And part of the blame for that lies at the feet of leaders in our churches who have spent decades, if not hundreds of years, being more concerned about evoking emotions and far less concerned about equipping the saints for the, the cognitive spiritual battles that are in front of us that we all must face. Right? We, we American evangelical churches today are far more concerned with entertainment, with making sure that there's something in the sermon, if not everything in the sermon, and nearly everything in the music that's geared toward provoking emotions, emotive responses, making people feel good, and affirming them. And if you look at most modern songs, even many of the good ones, they are really geared toward self-affirmation. They can't affirm God without affirming what God has done for me. Supposedly. Makes me feel good about myself. Jesus rescued me at the cross. And that evokes in most shallow-minded modern American Christians some sense of self-affirmation that they're not that bad after all. And that is not what it's intended to evoke. It should evoke utter amazement. Why? Why would such a God as he is, rescue such a man as I am. Why would he do that? But instead, because the thinking is broken in most American evangelicals, they don't think that way. Their response is completely different. They want to jump and run and dance and shout and sing because, because they feel affirmed. And they shouldn't feel affirmed. They should feel unworthy, grateful, and stunned. But they don't. And many pastors, many pastors miss this. They don't see this happening in their churches. So Peter's command that we should be ready at all times to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in us 
requires more than emotion. It is a spiritual preparedness. And you cannot prepare spiritually without preparing cognitively. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You cannot separate the two. You find me someone who ignores the intellect, who ignores cognitive duties before God, and I will find I will find you someone who is ignoring their spiritual, their basic core spiritual duties to God. It's it's like the sacrificial lamb has been offered up. The meat has been prepared. The children of God are called to eat the meat. And instead, instead, the meat sits on the table and no one wants to partake of anything. We would much rather be told how wonderful we are because Jesus is going to come back and we're going to conquer everything and I'm special because God has rescued me and, and I'm affirmed and I'm somebody. And We need to think better about these things. All right. Let's move, move on. If God, if God is the only source of knowledge in the physical universe, then necessarily, if knowledge exists, then God exists. Because God is the necessary condition for knowledge. Uh, in fact, we would also say that without, when you think about knowledge, you, you cannot, knowledge cannot arise from non-knowledge. Think about that for a second. How... If there's no knowledge, how would any knowledge come to be? You, you have to know something in order to learn something and grow in your knowledge. Knowledge, knowledge when you take it back, must have some sort of irreducible beginning. That it can, you cannot. It, it, we 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 know we we understand the principle of irreducible complexity. Knowledge is very similar. Knowledge itself would be considered irreducibly complex. It grows, but going backwards, you can only go back so far before you reach a point where, if you don't have at least that much knowledge, you can't have any knowledge. This is an area of discussion that atheists avoid. And I'm, in fact, I, I actually haven't seen, I've seen a few philosophers deal with this, but not a ton. And it's, it's interesting. Uh, I think potentially it, it might make people uncomfortable, especially people who are fighting against the existence of God who, or who are opposing religious thought or opposing Christianity or opposing any kind of theism whatsoever. And I can understand why one would be uncomfortable going there. If there is no God, then the most rational conclusion is that we are left with materialism and naturalism. Humans are just brains being controlled by the laws of physics. Hard determinism results. Not only is, is, is 
the, the meaning, any meaningful knowledge whatsoever, as we understand knowledge, completely and totally impossible and lost, there can be no morality. We don't even know what human beings are. We don't know anything. Uh, moral propositions do not contain truth-bearing properties. Everything reduces into mass chaos. Our brains are simply being controlled to pro process sensory data in the physical world according to the laws of physics. Nothing more, nothing less. And since the laws of physics control every brain differently, the idea of some sort of belief-forming model uh, that should be in place in order to obtain true knowledge of the physical universe is actually impossible. It's a myth. Peter said, Sanctify Christ as, Lord's in your, as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who has. Now, uh, we are to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We do not have to give a reason that meets the criteria of atheism. The theist claims to know that there are good reasons to think that the proposition God exists is true. We do. The atheist claims to know that there is that there are good reasons to think that the proposition God exists is false. Both of these are claims to knowledge. The atheist is claiming to know. And the question comes up philosophically, you know, what is knowledge? The most common definition of knowledge is this. Knowledge is justified true belief. A has formed a belief, B. A has adequate grounds for forming belief, B. B is true, therefore A knows B. Right? Now, the problem, the problem in this entire idea, this definition of knowledge is justified true beliefs, is that question justification. You know, A has adequate grounds for forming a belief. Well, what are adequate grounds for forming a certain belief. This takes us into the problem of the criterion. How does one come up with the criteria that qualify as grounds for forming a belief? The atheist says you have to have evidence. What kind of evidence? When you start asking what kind of evidence, they start coming up with all kinds of rules. Small claims only need small evidence. Big, giant claims like the existence of God need massive evidence. Well, 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 hang on. Now, most Christians will hear that and think, huh, that makes sense. Instead of pushing back on the atheists and saying, no, 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 no. You don't get to do that. You are now going to have to justify why. Belief in something that you think is massive, which Christians aren't going to say God belief is massive. Christians are going to say that God belief is the most fundamental, basic of kinds of beliefs one can form. Universal. Two plus two equals four. It's, it's a basic belief. It's not an outrageous claim like there are little green men on Mars. This is a belief that for some reason, the overwhelming majority of human beings on this planet agree there's a higher power. 
Well, the reason that human beings call this belief that is because of sin. But the reason that the belief is prevalent across societies and cultures to begin with is because human beings are created in the image of God, and we know, we understand. As we look at creation, as we examine ourselves, as we experience this sense of divinity within us, that God exists. Christians call him Yahweh. We call him Jesus. We call him the ontological triune God revealed in Scripture. Others have different names that they call this sense of divinity in them. Of course, uh, they have perverted the knowledge of God that is within them. But the point here is that the knowledge of God in human beings is inescapable. And it is why atheists fight it so vociferously. They know that God exists. And their sinful human mind wants to do everything possible to suppress that knowledge, to deny it. So they fight it, and they fight it, and they fight it. And they think that it makes life better, and that just isn't true. And they know that it isn't true. The torment of the presence of God is there. Now, if we're going to talk about criteria for forming a belief, uh, the, the question becomes, you know, what beliefs must a person affirm before arriving at a set of criteria that qualify as grounds for forming belief? Where does this idea of criteria come from? What criteria do we have to suggest that we should have criteria for how beliefs ought to be formed, if naturalism or materialism is true? I've already said that atheism cannot ground knowledge. It's unable to ground the idea that beliefs should or can be justified in any sense of the idea that we call epistemic justification. But if there is an immaterial mind as well as a physical brain, then the possibility for knowledge takes on a completely different look and feel. If humans are created in the image of God and we are to love God with all our being to include our mind, then the idea of a belief-forming model that humans should mimic a pattern an ideal function for both the brain and the mind makes perfect sense. We should think like God since we are created to be like God. That's the pattern. And when we think like God thinks, then knowledge becomes more than just possible. This means we actually know the truth about reality, about who and what we are and who God is and what he demands from his subjects and what he is like because he tells us these things in Scripture. This brings us to the question of human intelligence. What are the necessary preconditions for human predication? What has to be the case in order for human intelligibility to be the case? What kind of world has to exist in order for humans to know anything at all? Can knowledge arise apart from knowledge? I mentioned this earlier. Knowledge, I believe, is necessary for knowledge to obtain. It seems to me that without knowledge, knowledge is impossible. This would mean that knowledge is irreducibly complex. The very claim that one cannot know is 
a self-refuting claim because you must know in order to make the claim. Knowledge cannot arise from non-knowledge. Take your knowledge of what makes for a good apple. You build an apple picking machine to sort the apples from the, the good apples from the bad apples. What do you need to know before setting up the machine? You must already know what a good apple and what a bad apple is. Apply that analogy to beliefs. The rational human being desires to separate good beliefs from bad beliefs. How could they ever get started doing this unless they already have some idea of what good beliefs are? This is a serious problem for epistemic justification. You must already have a criteria in mind for what makes a good belief and a bad belief, no matter what. That is inescapable. Where did you get that from? Right. How do you know that you employ the right criteria for what qualifies as a good belief? This is the problem of the criterion. It is a very difficult problem for philosophers to solve. It isn't a problem for Christians. Christians should shed their current intellectual slothfulness, spend more time and energy thinking through how they will interact with opponents of the faith. Okay, It is not as complicated as many apologists want you to think, but it's also not for the intellectually disinterested or the sloth. If you have listened to some of the things I've said and you find them above your head, your solution is not to shrug your shoulders, click and click off the, the podcast and say this is just too much. You don't do that with your job. You didn't do that in school when you were working on your degree. You don't do that when you're fixing things at home, sir. Ma'am, you don't do it when you're preparing a new recipe for some new dessert or dish. You study it. You slow down. You give it some energy. Do you love God or not? Do you want to obey God or not? Turn off the television. Reduce the amount of time that you're watching uh the brain cell murdering, uh, what we used to call it, the one-eyed monster uh, back in the day. Open a book. Think. Yeah, if you've never done it before, if you really haven't gotten into serious contemplation on how things work and trying to wrap your head around concepts and principles that might be new to you, it's going to be uncomfortable, and that's okay. Anyone in this field who has studied philosophy, read philosophers, read apologists, um, every person I've ever encountered will tell you, when we first started doing this, good grief, you would have to read a paragraph four or five times to try to figure out what the person was saying. And, and then sometimes you still couldn't figure it out. And it would, it, in some cases, it took years. And 
in many cases, there's a ton that those of us who spend time on the intellects, we just don't understand. Face it, some people have intellectual capabilities far, far and above what <laughs> some of us have. But there is no excuse for being lazy. No excuse for being uh, uh, irresponsible with the human mind. God gave it to you for a reason. Jesus said you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. God expects, expects us to love him with all our being. It is a commandment. Paul said, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him too and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. That, obeying what the Apostle Paul is writing, requires thinking on your part, serious thinking. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations. What do you speculate in your mind? And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Another inference to the mind. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. All right, to wrap it up, Greg Bonson writes in his book, Always Ready, the man who claims scholarly neutrality or philosophic autonomy incurs God's judgment upon that very area in which the man boasts his intellect. Those who refuse to presuppose the epistemic lordship of Christ the truth of Scripture as the standard of knowledge and the necessity of God's light before they can see light are led into futile thoughts and darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. There is no place in Christianity for intellectual sloth. There is no place in Christianity for uh, lazy, emotive, self-affirming, psychological pop Christianity that we see in modern American evangelical churches. We must prepare ourselves for the war that is not coming, the war that is upon us. Not just the spiritual war that we've been fighting day in and day out, but a new movement from the enemy. Uh, at least as far as American experience is concerned. Our brothers and sisters have faced this fight throughout the history of Christianity and across the globe even in modern times. And now it's our turn. And the question is, will we honor Christ Will we glorify God in how we conduct ourselves in this world or not? You've been, you've been taught over the last four or five years 
that uh, Christianity is reducible to affirming homosexuals, apologizing to homosexuals, apologizing ad nauseum for slavery, uh, taking up fights against specific sins and eliminating specific sins from the culture and giving people water and clothes. And you think that that is what Christianity really is uh, all about, and it isn't. Uh, you can give out all the water and clothes and food and do all the good deeds you that a person can possibly do on this planet and not glorify God for one single solitary second. If you're giving out water and you're not bringing the truth, speaking the truth into people's lives and confronting their rebellion against God with the truth of God and warning them against the judgment that is to come, warning them against the judgment that is to come. Look at modern American Christianity and ask yourself a question. How is God presented to this culture? How is Christ offered to this culture? He's offered as your best option. People are encouraged to give him a chance, to give God an opportunity. But that is not how Christianity, how God is presented to a rebellious, sinful culture in Scripture. The apostles, Christ, the prophets warned the people about the wrath of God. Yes, they talked about the love of God. God, God will remove his wrath if you will place your faith and trust in him and acknowledge him as your creator. But they warned, if you refuse, it's not an option. It's not a great choice. You must acknowledge your creator who created you in his image, who has been gracious towards you. For if you continue to do what you're doing right now, you will face the wrath of an almighty God. I say it like this to people. The divine summons for you to appear in the divine court before the divine judge has been issued. You will stand before your maker. You will give an account. Will Christ's sin, suffering on the cross, remove your sin? Or will you bear the wrath of God yourself? This is, this is the gospel. Warning people about the wrath to come. Jesus did it. John did it. Peter did it. Paul did it. John the Baptist did it. The prophets all did it. We don't do it. We can't even talk about sin without qualifying it. What, 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 what does that look like? Anytime modern preachers go to talk about sin, they have to qualify it by saying, I understand no one's perfect. I understand that we all have faults. I understand that we all sin. I understand that we all have uh, things that we're working on. And that's how it's qualified every single time. Do you see that in Scripture? I don't see that in Scripture. I see, I see things in Scripture like when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he didn't say in chapter 5, we, well, we all, we all have our issues that we're working on, and none of us are perfect. The apostle Paul didn't think he was perfect. None of us are perfect. We're all struggling with sin. 
And I, I understand that, you know, this couple, this man especially, uh, is, is, you know, he, we're sinners just like he is. So somebody needs to help him. That's not what Paul did, is it? But that's the kind of Christianity that's presented today. Paul said if any man who claims to be a brother is living an immoral life, have absolutely nothing to do with him. If he's committing adultery, if he's living immorally, if he's lying, if he's engaging in a lifestyle that is not reflective of genuine faith, you have nothing to do with him. Don't even eat with him. And the whole point is hopefully to produce true repentance in that individual. But we don't do that. We have to return to biblical Christianity. What we have right now in American Christianity is, is so far removed from the biblical model that the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of American evangelicals do not have the slightest clue what biblical Christianity actually looks like. And that's sad. It's pathetic. Especially in this age where we have so much available to us. This goes back to the intellectual sloth. All right, I am at an hour. I really do have to stop. Listen, thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, uh, and you're listening to the Reformed Rant uh, on uh, the app, you can leave comments there. You can go over to, to Reformation Charlotte. I think we've got... Um, there's a fa the Facebook page, the Reformed uh, Reasons Podcast. Uh, there's the also, uh, which is also a Facebook page, the Reformed Reasons Podcast. And then there's the um, website, reformedreasons.com. And uh, yeah, MeWe, I think there's uh, something out on MeWe as well, Reformation Charlotte. So um, uh, feel free to stop over there, leave comments, ask questions. Um, and I'll be happy to uh, respond as I, uh, as I can. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com Oh, we mow it, 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 oh,